the city of St. Louis, you're listening to the Don't Push Pause podcast with your hosts. It was December 24th on Hollis Avenue, the dark, when I seen a man chilling with his dog in the park. I approached him very slowly with my heart full of fear. Welcome to the podcast. Welcome to our 100th episode, everyone. 100 episodes. We finally made it. Not comparing ourselves to other podcasts, but I know a lot of podcasts, they seem like they do way more episodes than we do. Episode 8,032. Yeah, so it's like, you know, we've been around for four years. It seems like we should have more episodes than 100, but we don't, but we're here, 100 episodes. I'm so happy to say that it's it's a big deal for me. We've been doing this for a long time. We've covered a ton of great Big deal movies. For me too. I know. I mean, Big for deal. both of us. For both of us. We were trying to figure out what movie to do for a hundredth episode. It seemed like we had to do something special. It seems to us that our biggest hits, the episodes that we get the most downloads on, are our '80s movies. People love them. They mm-hmm. love to hear us talk about them. So <laughs> we had to go for an '80s movie. We went for a big one. And seeing how it is the holiday season, we chose John McTiernan's Die Hard from 1988. The most hotly contested question for, is this a Christmas movie or not? Yeah, people uh, get downright angry about it. They're angry that people consider it a Christmas movie. There's some people that get angry just the fact that people are talking about it and acknowledging that this movie has anything to do with Christmas. Uh, There's some people that swear up and down that they've always thought of it as a Christmas movie. We'll get into it. We'll talk a little bit about it, what our own opinions are. And so it seemed like a good movie to choose for our 100th episode. There's a lot to talk about with this movie. There's a lot that's been said about Die Hard. There's a lot of great history with this movie. And we'll get into a lot of that, um, especially how this movie came to be. It had a long history of its development. We'll get into our favorite thing to talk about, as always, and that's casting. And this movie has a very, I think, amazing casting story with uh, creating a breakout star in Bruce Willis. I will admit that I knew him before Die Hard. I watched Moonlighting as a kid. I mean, it's not a kid's show at all, but Sybil Shepard and Bruce Willis, I mean, it was a detective show. That was, that was so much fun. Same thing for me. I liked more adult-themed TV yeah. shows when I was a kid. I don't know why. The movie Blind Date. Um, oh, yeah, Blind Date's would, wonderful. been on cable. <laughs> I mean, at the time. Yeah, yeah, and I would say, you know, I could count on 10 fingers the, the amount of times that I've walked out of a movie theater and just sort of felt like I just had my mind blown. And Die Hard was definitely one of those movies. Uh, I went to see it when I was 10 and coming out of the theater, just that sort of feeling of like, wow, I just watched like the best thing I've ever seen in my (laughs) life. And just how the spectacle of it all and how big of a movie it looked and how many explosions there were just, and to see that on a big screen too, not, you know, on, you know, I don't know if people, remember this if you're younger than us but like back then we didn't have huge televisions I mean I think the largest tv that we had in our house was like 25 inches and the tv that had in my room was like 13 inch tv so you know when you saw explosions you a TV in, in your room yeah oh my god I'm jealous but when you saw explosions and stuff they didn't yeah. look that exciting on a 13 inch sure. television sure. versus seeing it on a huge screen with like loud loud uh- stereo sound that's going to be another thing that we're going to talk about yeah. are the action sequences, stunts. Um, I would like to get into the 
the balance between comedy and action that Die Hard does. It's not like this is a knee slapper of a movie, but it certainly integrates a lot of comedy, which was a huge part of the writing process in this movie. We'll talk about uh, some of the cinematography and get into Jean DeBont, who's... I mean, kind of a big deal. Yeah. And was brought in on this film. And of course, we'll wrap it up with release reception and how this changed some careers. After that, we'll get into our picks of the week. What was your pick of the week, Lindsay? I was trying to remember. I went with a courtroom drama thriller that I consider to have one of the most spine tingling endings ever in a movie, especially during the especially during the late 80s, and that was Presumed Innocent. Presumed Innocent, that's right. Co-starring Bonnie Bedelia, who plays Holly McLean. This was the uh, sort of like serious adult drama movies that Harrison Ford was doing in the early 90s. Mm-hmm. It's like this and Frantic came out around the same time. Yeah. I haven't seen Presumed Innocent, I don't think, since the 90s, so this will be my reason to revisit that film. Again, with the adult-themed movies, watching it too early of an age, but I watched this. I think this came out in 1990. I should not have been watching this, just as I should not have watched Fatal Attraction in 87, but I did. And there's something that, that sticks with you about some of these films, and Presumed Innocent. It's one that every time I try to forget what happens at the end, I really try to block it out so I can feel the emotional impact. It's just so dang good. And Justin, what was your pick of the week? My pick was Ricochet, written by Steven D'Souza, who wrote the screenplay to Die Hard. This movie is about as over-the-top and insane as it gets. I loved this movie when it came out. It was right during the um, gigantic uh, reign of gangster rap, Ice T's in it. This is your wheelhouse. Um, yeah, this is... Uh, you know, John Lithgow, like doing the most over the top bad guy. Denzel Washington, kind of like at the beginning of his career, you know, he immediately the first 20 minutes of this movie, it you it looks like if, if like Sam Raimi did like a cop thriller. There's a lot to be admired with this one. So um, I wanted to go with something fun, especially with the, uh, you know, a police officer in uh, peril movie thriller. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a wonderful pick of the week. And as always, we'll round things out with our Murray moment. But, Lindsay, before we get into our first clip from Die Hard, can you please give us your description, your interpretation of what this movie's about? You write these yourself. This isn't, you're not pulling this off of IMDb. This is a hundred episodes you've, you've written these out, your summary of the movie. Some are better than others, but I, I, I give it my all, at least at the time. On this particular Christmas Eve, New York cop John McClane flies across the country hoping to reconcile with his wife, Holly, who's recently moved with their children to take a new high-paying job in Los Angeles. Unsure if he'll show up for the holiday, McClane surprises Holly by coming to a massive party at her work. Amidst the couple trying to reconnect and having unresolved feelings, Holly's called out to speak at the company party, and McClane plans to meet her there shortly after. But quickly in, All plans are thwarted and violence erupts as a German radical named Hans Gruber and his heavily armed team of attractive bad guys take over the building and hold the Nakatomi employees hostage. What's the goal of these thieves posing as terrorists? To steal 600 million worth in bear bonds in the Nakatomi vault. But they're not counting on a lone, gritty New York cop to throw a wrench in their plans. Once McLean makes radio contact with a friendly L.A. cop and steals Gruber's explosives, It's only a matter of time before the bad guys amp up their game to hunt down this renegade cop loose in the walls of the Nakatomi Tower. Very nice. I tried to be dramatic. I like it. I like it. It was effective. Well, let's go to our first clip from Die Hard. We'll come back. We'll talk about it. Al, Al, do you copy? 
Are you all right? <laughs> yeah, I'm fine. <coughs> what was that? Remember that plastic explosive I told you about? Yeah. There you go. Is the building on fire? No, but it's gonna need a paint job and a shitload of screen doors. Our spotters say you got two with that blast. Is that him? Is that him? Yes, sir. Now, you listen to me, mister. I don't know who in the hell you think you are or what you're doing, but you just destroyed a building. Now, we do not want your help. Is that clear? We don't want your help. I've got 100 people down here, and they're covered with glass. Glass? Who gives a shit about glass? Who the fuck is this? This is Deputy Chief of Police Dwayne T. Robinson, and I am in charge of this situation. Oh, you're in charge? Well, I got some bad news for you, Dwayne. From up here, it doesn't look like you're in charge of jack shit. You listen to me, you little asshole. I'm a asshole? I'm not the one who just got butt-fucked on national TV, Dwayne. <laughs> now, you listen to me, jerk-off. If you're not part of the solution, you're part of the problem. Quit being part of the fucking problem and put the other guy back on. Hey, Roy, how you feeling? Pretty fucking unappreciated, Al. Hey, look, I love you. So do a lot of the other guys. So you hang in there, man, you hear me? You hang in there. Yeah, thanks, partner. Now, when we start doing deep dives for these movies, when we start our research, I'm always surprised to find out how long some movies have been in development. Like when we talked about Beverly Hills Cop, you know, a lot of times these movies have been in development for years and years before they have an, have an idea of like who they're going to cast or anything. It exchanges studios, it exchanges producers. And I was kind of shocked to find out that the roots of Die Hard dated back a little over two decades from the time of production, all the way back 1966. Yeah, starting with his book by Roderick Thorpe named The Detective, the story based on a retired police officer. Now, true, the evolution does begin here, um, but it started to get more of its inspiration from the movie in 1968 starring Frank Sinatra that was called The Detective, and it was one of the highest grossing movies at the time and was a big hit for Sinatra. So big that a sequel for the book was planned, and even before the book was written, um, it was already planned, we're going to make this into a movie, and this is going to be a big deal, and Fox had already purchased the rights before this sequel to The Detective was going to be written. That sequel would take a Many years to uh, eventually come to fruition, but it would be called Nothing Lasts Forever, written by the same author, Roderick Thorpe. And Nothing Lasts Forever dealt with a lot of the same things that Die Hard did. The same police officer who, unlike John McClane, was 60 years old, um, it did take place on Christmas Eve, involved fighting terrorists in a large building. There was going to be a you know huge scene at the top of this building. In this story, someone would fall from the top of the tower, but it wouldn't be Hans Gruber like we see in Die Hard. So even though Fox purchased the rights to this, to make this a movie eventually, this project would stall out and it wouldn't be until eight years later that someone found uh, the inspiration to reignite uh, this story and make what we now know as Die Hard. And that person was Lloyd Levin, a development exec at uh, 20th Century who revived the idea, knew that this was a good story, but needed somebody to actually do it. Um, Screenwriter Jeb Stewart was working for Walt Disney at the time, hadn't really done a lot, and his agent was handed this story and said, okay, see what you can do with it. There's really no one that wants this project. You're contractually obligated to Walt Disney, but, you know, 
we're basically giving you this and the only criteria that you need to hang on to is that you got to keep it in Los Angeles. You got to keep the Christmas aspects of the story, but pretty much you've got creative control of this. Fox didn't have too much stock in this story actually happening. And that happens a lot. There are so many scripts out there that are written that they'll put some money behind a writer doing this and nothing ever actually happens with it. And this is kind of where it started. But Levin was hoping that this would be a big time action flick and that nothing lasts forever would turn into a giant blockbuster. And Fox was really looking at making this a big action blockbuster. Action movies were really popular in the 80s and they had really changed a lot. In the 60s and 70s, Action movies were a little bit more on the adventure side or they incorporated genres like war or westerns. And the action movie of the 80s started out pretty wild, you know, with with Stallone and Schwarzenegger. But by 1987, we're starting to see some corniness in action movies, you know, with the one-liners. The studio was looking for something a little bit different, you know, take everything that had been popular, but like, let's make something a little more... Um, that's action driven, but that has a little more serious tone, but still has some of the humor that was also popular, you know, during this time. There was another change in action movies where we had kind of the buddy cop action movie type thing with Lethal Weapon. And there were more um, like goofy action movies like Big Trouble in Little China. So something along these lines, but you know, you have this very uh, well designed action set pieces mixed with like a good hero type story. Die Hard was, I think when it came out, like something of its own time, you know, we'll get, we'll get into this later, but I mean, I think post Die Hard, how many action movies were explained of Die Hard on a boat, Die Hard on a plane, Die Hard on this, Die Hard on that. Not too many other action movies of the eighties were used in that way. So it became synonymous with the describing an action film after the success of Die Hard. So Jeb Stewart had his work cut out for him. Um, you know, he hadn't really written any action movies. He had written some thrillers. He had a good blueprint. You know, he had a book that really, I mean, functioned as a really good outline for an action movie. You know, you've got terrorists taking over a big building on Christmas Eve. That would pique my interest right yeah. away. <laughs> yeah. So he did have his work cut out for him, and that included 18-hour days, and it was just something that was completely disrupting his life. So much so that he's said this many times that he had a fight uh, with his wife about how much he was working and just how much it was just a negative drag on their life. And after one particular blow-up, he leaves the house in a rage and is just like flying down the highway and realizes that right up ahead of him is this box, right? And he doesn't know what's in the box. It could be empty. It could have 5,000 pounds of concrete in it. And he realizes that there's no way around it. He, the only thing he has to do is is charge through it. That's his only uh, way out of this. And the box ends up being empty. But he feels like his life might be over in that moment. And he pulls over to the highway, has a freak out moment, and realizes as his heart is pounding that he just went through this emotionally charged experience 
and he discovers what he feels is the central theme to Nothing Lasts Forever, and that's a man who should have apologized to his wife before something catastrophic happened and he never had the chance to. With that, goes home, of course, apologizes to his wife, they make up, and that night he writes 25 pages of this script. And he takes those 25 pages, along with producing team Lawrence Gordon and Joel Silver, who had done Commando, 48 Hours, and Predator together, and they go pitch this story to 20th Century Fox. Stewart leads with telling execs like super excited about the emotional component of the story that the marriage is the focus of this and Gordon stops him like immediately and is like that's one angle of the story but um we need to complete this draft and basically he stops him like when talking to executives and is like we need to not like play up that angle but we want to boost up the action angle before we go into that and Joel Silver says Another thing, this movie's not going to be called Nothing Lasts Forever. It's going to be called Die Hard. And if you're going for, if a studio wants a giant action movie, I don't even know what Die Hard means, but just throwing out that title, okay, all right, I believe that that's going to be a good action movie. You tell me the basic plot, it's terrorists taking over a building, and this guy estranged from his wife, okay, this police officer, okay, sure. I want to hear more. So Jeb Stewart... You go ahead and you finish that draft, and he does. He gets it done in six weeks. And the next hurdle after this draft is done is finding a director. And the first person that the producers go to is Paul Verhoeven, who did RoboCop at the time. And they were like, we want a RoboCop feel, vibe. This is the level of action that we want. Verhoeven turns them down. And the next person to turn them down, not once, not three times, but four times, turns them down would eventually become the director, and that's John McTiernan, whom they worked with on Predator. And when John McTiernan finally relents and says, okay, I'll do it, but there's got to be a lot of changes. One, these terrorists, nobody likes terrorists. We, I, I need bank robbers. I don't want terrorists. You can't, there's no fun in terrorists. And if I'm going to do this movie, it needs to be fun. It needs to have some sense of joy to it. And that has to be written into the script. And there wasn't really that element there yet. Anyway, you needed to have a little bit of comedy inserted into it. So the studio was able to snag McTiernan as director, but because of his demands of changing up the script, um, it was the end of Jeb Stewart. And man, I don't know how many movies we've talked about where somebody starts off with a script and develops it and then they get like the studio just drops them for like a new for a new writer to like make the script go in a different direction and Jeb Stewart was pretty upset he'd been working on script for a long time it was like he was excited about the project he still does get screenwriter credit you know in the movie and you know he went on to have a pretty good career even covered uh his directorial debut switchback as one of my pick of the weeks for an earlier episode the studio had worked with steven d'souza he had done um commando he had done 48 hours he was really good at writing comedy into action movies he also worked very quickly and that was good news for the studio because they this thing was greenlit they wanted to go we'll get into it but they got their lead actor Essentially, when they started shooting, they only had pretty much like the first 35, 40 pages that Jeb Stewart had put together, which was the nuts and bolts, the structure of the movie and how the bad guys get there and what happens to John McClane when he, um, why he's going to see his wife. And this isn't unheard of for Hollywood movies where 
Um, they're constantly making script changes while the shooting of the movie is going on. Jeb Stewart's like finishing the movie while they're shooting the first half of it. And so he's frantically trying to infuse more humor. He's trying to add in more elements of action. In the end, does really an amazing job, especially to be under the the gun for like trying to um, continuously write what's going to happen next while they're shooting the first half of the movie. That's kind of nuts. It is. It really is. And to go back to the lead actor, I mean, we all know that Bruce Willis became the lead of this movie, but the studio, um, you know, again, they didn't have a completed script and they needed a lead actor. And this movie was sent around to, if you can think of any actor who was like remotely like an action star, everybody from Burt Reynolds to Harrison Ford, they were given this script, Sylvester Sloan, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Eastwood. Eastwood, yeah. <laughs> Every single person turned it down. Um, mainly because the first 30 minutes is this guy who's, you know, kind of an everyday Joe who's leaving New York to go to L.A. with his tail between his legs to apologize to his wife. And she's very successful and has the kids. And they were like, this guy is kind of wimpy. He's not, you know, the action star when Schwarzenegger, all these guys are doing movies where like in the opening scene, they're like roughing people up and like it's this big thing. And nothing really happens to the main character until the first 30 minutes, which is what I love about this movie. And so they had nobody left. Nobody was taking it. There was an idea of Bruce Willis to star in the movie. He was on a hit TV show at the time, Moonlighting. Wasn't a massive hit, but, you know, he was kind of the the hit breakout star of that show and mainly known for his wisecracks his uh cocky demeanor women really loved him they thought he was like really attractive you know i've been looking around for this i still don't understand how uh this came to be but because nobody wanted to do this movie and they needed someone desperately so they could start shooting bruce willis's agent managed to secure a deal for him to make $5 million to star in a genre that he was not known for. He had only really done two other movies. One of them was a really unknown movie called Sunset with James Gardner. And the other one was a Blake Edwards comedy, Blind Date. He was also a Seagram's spokesperson. So there's really nothing in his uh, career at that point that screams, hey, this guy could be a great action star. The studio took a gamble on it. Um, there really wasn't a lot of faith in Bruce Willis doing this part, but they went ahead somehow, I guess maybe because the studio was desperate or Bruce Willis had one of the best agents in Hollywood. He gets a $5 million deal, which was kind of unheard of at the time. I'm sure everybody who turned that script down uh, was like, wait, what? <laughs> yeah. How much money were you going to pay him? You know, I wonder if they would have thrown that much money at Stallone or one of these actors if they would have done it. But they secure Bruce Willis and start shooting. And again, like we said, the script is not complete. Once they start shooting, D'Souza wants to write more humor for Bruce Willis, but Bruce Willis's agent and his people are like, nah, they don't, you know, he's supposed to be an action star in this. Like, we don't want to make him too funny. In the early part of shooting, Bruce Willis was doing wisecracks, like how he did in Moonlighting, but it wasn't really playing very well on screen. When they were doing dailies, he, he wasn't coming off likable. So they wanted to make him more likable, make him nicer, cut out the sar sarcastic type stuff. And then D'Souza talked to Bruce Willis and he said, hey, you know, I I want to put more comedy in this. The studio wants more comedy, but like I'm getting word that that's not something I should do for your character. And he's like, you know, Bruce Willis is like, no, like that's great. And so they start working together and that's how some of the humor comes through a little bit more. And it's like less being a wise ass and more about being humorous in the situations. I mean, he still says a couple things that are sarcastic, but nowhere near the kind of sarcasm that you get 
in him messing with people like he was in on Moonlighting and with D'Souza working so closely with Willis, which is another thing that I think is a little bit out of the ordinary. You have the writer on set, you know, writing fresh new pages while talking to the lead actor about what they should do. And in their little meetups, uh, they created together one of the most quotable lines in history. D'Souza was talking to Willis about some of his heroes and they start talking about Roy Rogers and they, you know, come up with the idea of like him in the movie saying how he likes Roy Rogers and then the yippee Kaye came out of that um, discussion. So even though it seemed risky that they were, that he was writing on the fly, you know, a lot of unique ideas came out of being under pressure and, and be, doing it there in a the moment. It was a little more spontaneous. And that's kind of one of the things too, that McTiernan as a director, he said that he learned on Predator a lot of the things that were turned out to be wonderful in the film were accidents. And he learned to kind of ride that. And in this, um, just kind of went with things that he was unsure about and just went with it. And usually they turned out really well. To me, that's super risky, but he's also not a director who likes to waste a lot of time. He's very straightforward and just likes to get it done. Because I, he said something like, the longer that a production goes on, the longer that things are going, sometimes you just lose steam and interest. And we talked about McTiernan before um, during one of our early, early episodes with The Predator. In that episode, we talked about how McTiernan said he would never make this mistake again. They had someone scout a location for the Predator shooting, and when they got there, uh, you know, it was, you know, when they scouted, it was this big, luscious jungle setting, but then they didn't realize that all those plants die out, and so they got there, and things were, like, real sparse-looking. They had to start spray-painting different plants to make them look like they were in the jungle, and he said it, he said they almost didn't get away with it, that it just didn't look right, and so he said he always wanted full control of the location. He would never not look at a location. So this seemed like a dream idea for him, and the fact that the studio itself had a building that they owned. They were moving into the Fox Plaza building. Uh, it was still under construction, just like the movie is in Die Hard, and they because they own the building and because they were a production company they were like this is perfect we have full reign to do explosions to shoot in here to do whatever we want and no one can tell us what to do they had a few of the bottom floors and then they had control of the very top and then there were a lot of floors that were still under construction but the floors that were in use became somewhat problematic when you've got lawyers and other people who are trying to go about their daily business and not wanting gunshots and explosions happening yeah, and there were a lot of complaints with that. But they said after five, those people are going home, <laughs> and then we have full control to shoot through the night. And so McTiernan was very happy about that, and it happened to be a very great-looking building in the central, the Nakatomi Towers. Um, I think the the building itself is as iconic to the movie as anything else, and it keeps it very insulated. You really get to see the geography of this building. They do a really good job of staging it as well. The cinematographer, Jean Debont, had already had um, some experience doing high-budget action-y type movies. Uh, he would go on to direct Speed and Twister, but he did a great job of like showing the audience the layout of the building. You know, we even have a few times where, you know, I'm bouncing back between the idea of like, they're on this floor. Uh, these are the floors that are unoccupied, that are under construction. You know, we even have a scene where uh, Bruce Willis like runs past and there's this poster of these like women that probably some sort of like construction worker had plastered on the yeah. wall. <laughs> and he's like, hey girls. I think that helps because in an action movie, a lot of times things can be like 
like disorienting and you kind of lose where you're at in the movie. And I feel like in Die Hard, uh, we constantly know like where the terrorists are. They're on this floor with the hostages. The guys are going up to this floor to do something. They've got the bombs and they got to go up here. There's all this discussion about the roof. We see the roof. We see what's one floor below. The building does become an essential part of the movie. And I think it makes it to me much more intense. And we, I feel like I'm in that building with those guys. And I just love this idea that it's like under construction. So there's all this great moments to where they can work with that, especially all the elevator stuff, you know, where he's falling down the shaft and he's crawling through. And so many scenes where um, he's in the guts of the building and it becomes essentially a character as well it's crazy how just the like you said guts of the building can become just as important as the beautiful scenes that we do see the architectural uh, inspirations by like Tadao Ando and uh, uh, Frank Lloyd Wright and there's totally some Japanese architecture that's inspired in this film too and that can be just as beautifully used as the floors that are still under construction and that comes into play when we talk about the stunt work a little bit later. And I got to say, I don't know if this was the first movie that started this. I don't know a lot about HVAC systems and that kind of thing, but I've never seen um, <laughs> air ducts that are like large enough that a human could like I know where you're be going inside them. This. And I don't know. I feel like this was the first movie that introduced like someone crawling around to hide in an air duct vent. Alien. Um, alien. Yeah, alien. Yeah, that's true. Um, but I feel like after this movie, there was just, I mean, I, I feel like the last 30 years, you know, every year there's at least one movie where someone's like hiding or looking through or like climbing through an air duct vent to get from one area of a building or a house to another. You can do like a full somersault in yeah. these air ducts. Well, let's take a little break. We'll go to another clip from Die Hard. When we get back, we'll talk about those stunts and the special effects, and then we'll get into our favorite, the cast. Mr. Mr. Guest. Are you still there? Yeah, I'm still here. Unless you want to open a front door for me. No, I'm afraid not. But you have me at a loss. You know my name, but who are you? Just another American who saw too many movies as a child. Another orphan of a bankrupt culture who thinks he's John Wayne, Rambo, Marshall Dillon. I was always kind of partial to Roy Rogers, actually. I really like those sequined shirts. Do you really think you have a chance against us, Mr. Cowboy? The number one thing that stands out to me Mm -hmm. as far as it being an action movie and as far as it setting itself aside from other action movies, it's not a cat and mouse thing. There's villains and there's a hero and they are fighting each other, but there's a whole other story going on and there's other elements at play. And there's also not a big car chase thing. There's not, (laughs) there's not, you know, I mean, it all take, you know, it all takes place in one building and in one night in one night and there's also everything is like moving the plot or we're getting a moment to ramp up the tension just feel like a lot of action movies where i always feel like half of the movie is like again some sort of like chase sequence the bad guys are running after the good guys that works in a lot of movies but it does get kind of old and that's why I die hard every time I watch it. It still feels pretty fresh to me. Not just that, but the special effects in this movie. I don't know enough about CGI and blue screen. Um, I do know in the 90s there was like some really terrible blue screen, green screen type stuff. You know, some of the like mid 90s action movies haven't aged well. 
The stuff in Die Hard, man, is like aged really great. I mean, Alan Rickman falling off of Nakatomi Tower at the end, it looks really great. And I know that they had a blue screened airbag and Alan Rickman wanted to do this stunt himself so that it looked authentic. Well, it was a close-up shot. There wasn't a way to like yeah. fake it. And so, you know, but he decided yeah. to do it. He had never done a stunt and he actually was supposed to fall something like 30 feet or something 40 40 feet. 40, 40 feet. Yeah. That's a long fall. And they basically had him lay on something that was blue blue and then they with a computer like turned that into what you know, looks like 300 foot drop. It still looks fantastic. All of the explosion stuff, the miniature that's that they made that's supposed to be Nakatomi Tower exploding. Seriously, I mean, I know that it's a miniature and I watch Die Hard and it looks freaking great. And you can this, thank Richard Edlund, special effects yeah. master for that one, man. And another thing with this movie that always catches me off guard is the sound. The shootout with the when they shoot the glass. It is so freaking loud and so realistic sounding. You know, I feel like I'm in like a gun range. And then when it ends, it's just, it's so quiet, you know, and you know, the music kind of ramps up, but like. Weren't there people that had damage to their ears, including Bruce Willis? Yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of explosions in this and you kind of, you forget how much, um, cause the movie it moves really fast and there's a lot of humor and there's a lot of scenes where they're setting up things, you know, they're, he's Hans is talking with the hostages. He's trying, they're, they're explaining their plan. They're talking with the police, but in between this, there's like a lot of gunfire and there's a lot of explosions and a lot of thrilling scenes. I mean, I, I keep going back to the elevator chef scene i i mean is there anybody that when you're in the elevator you don't know now that you can push up that thing and then possibly like (laughs) be on top of an elevator you know the the inner working of like how elevators in between this whole really section of a building that you never really thought about and now you're seeing like what goes on behind elevator shafts when they go up and when he's on top and he has to duck down he almost almost gets squished it's just it's all very thrilling and again the effects all this looks really realistic to me it holds up there's only one element that was pointed out to me bruce willis is wearing fake feet during the glass scene so he didn't actually so he could run over actual glass but not really cut up his feet and there are these big rubber feet that he's wearing and i guess there's one shot where you can see the end of it almost looks like a boot i've never noticed that you know now i almost wish it didn't get pointed out to me because now i see it every time (laughs) but it doesn't look like a lot of stunt people in the movie because there's a lot of Schwarzenegger stuff where it cuts to, and because Schwarzenegger's such a unique looking build, you know, it, you, you cut to, you see these movies yeah. now and it's like, yeah, that's not Schwarzenegger on, yeah. on the truck or whatever. Same thing with like the Indiana Jones stuff, you know? Um, but this movie, I don't really notice it as much that there's a, a stunt person. So they do a really good job of making it seamless so that it looks like Bruce Willis um, performing most of the stunts. And you can thank uh, renowned stunt coordinator Charlie Paterni for that one, too, who orchestrated all of these stunts. And the one that I learned about that I would have never even thought happened was when Bruce Willis is jumping from one vent to another and he, like, climbs on and, like, it's, like, hanging, you know? Did you hear this, that he that, yeah. the, that the stunt guy actually missed and didn't grab it and fell? But how they corrected that was they used that shot... Uh, but just cut it with another shot of Bruce Willis dropping and grabbing on. So, you know, you don't see the stunt guy yeah. drop, but that is where he dropped. And that's um 
probably one of those happy accidents that John McTiernan's talking about is shooting something and getting, I mean, getting someone actually falling, but you cut it in the right spot that it looks perfect. Like he yeah. just grabbed on. And I like this continuous, uh, it's a simple thing, but a wardrobe of having him just wear this like white wife beater undershirt. He looks pretty and that, good. And then you slowly yeah. see this thing like, basically it's just like grayish black and caked by the end of the movie. It doesn't, <laughs> there's no white left on that shirt. Yeah. Um, they do a really good job of making him look battered and bruised. I mean, even the shocking look on his wife's face when she sees him, she's yeah. like, oh my God, you know, yeah. you look like you've been through hell. The stunts that I love the best are probably the scenes with uh, Alexander Gudinov and Bruce Willis fighting. And anytime the actors are using objects around them, and it's just so, um, I don't know if I'd call this movie brutal necessarily, but it's really inventive in the way that the fight sequences happen. And it is like choreography, just in everything is so planned out and so perfect that you can know I'm going to hit someone with this chain or this dolly that just happens to be in this space that was already pre-existing. And it adds to the realness of the whole atmosphere. And it also just makes it feel, um, I don't know, I, I, I like that there's not something that seems out of the ordinary. Like it, it, yeah. it seems like if this fight is actually happening, this is what you would grab for to like try to hit someone with. You know, when you're in a room, you're like, Someone's coming to attack me. What am, what am I going to grab? I'm going to grab a lamp. The first thing around you. It's the same type of thing. The kinetic energy of all of the action in this movie is really evident in how the actors play it. And also, I think having the production team working in three shifts, three eight-hour shifts over just 24-7, I think that that had to play some role in just feeling completely like nuts and wanting to make it the most action-heavy um movie that was yeah. at the time they really get the most out of the shoeless bruce willis whenever uh he's like has to kick his way into he's like hanging from the uh, hose and he's like you know trying to kick the glass with his bloody feet and then he like shoots through and then the fire hose thing falls and then it starts pulling him he's trying to untie it it's a really well edited and like yeah. sequenced scene and again using um the elements around you using the fire hose that yeah. would naturally be up top um, using that, you're like, oh, of course, God, he's such a smart guy. Yeah, and he's when, just a regular Joe. <laughs> when I, I also love that there's like some self awareness because in a lot of action movies, especially pumped up movies with Schwarzenegger, he he's fearless. You know, even like in in Tom Cruise movies, he's always fearless. Mm -hmm. With Die Hard, you know, Bruce Willis is like, what are you doing, John? You're crazy. He's like wrapping around his like yeah, waist. He's he like, you're gonna die. You know, it's just like it's a very <laughs> self aware like. This is, I may not make it. This yeah. is like a bad decision, but I'm like forced to do it. No I got to do option. this to survive. Yeah. Yeah. And going back to the Alan Rickman scene where he has a look on his face before he falls, I saw in an interview that the coordinator was going to, they were going to let him go, you know, that he was really going to drop and they want it to be more authentic. So they were like, we're going to do it on three, but then they let him go before they got to the count. So he was not ready for it. And that look on his face, they said was genuine terror. And Alan Rickman to me is, I think 50% of what makes this movie work so well. I can't really think of a better villain. The fact that this was Alan Rickman's uh, feature film debut. Yeah. It's insane. <laughs> it I mean, really he was, is. you know, he, he had been a theater actor for a long time. He was already in his early forties when he did Die Hard. He just has a presence and uh, a coolness and intelligence 
um, when he comes on screen immediately, you're like, yeah, this guy's in total control. He's totally calm. He's thought everything out really well. He's not running off of emotion. He's really calculated what Alan Rickman does with that character. Um, the only other thing I could possibly compare it to would be like Anthony Hopkins, uh, Hannibal Lecter. I see what you're saying there. Like you never don't want Hannibal Lecter to come back on screen. And I think even more than Lecter, never have I enjoyed a, an an elitist sociopath more than Alan Rickman and Die Hard. Like I want him to come back on screen and I want to know what's going to be next. I don't want him to win by, by any means, but um, he's just so slick. And I don't know, there's something incredibly entertaining about him just as much as there is watching how McLean is going to obviously win. It's so cold-blooded, but there's never a point where you, like, hate Hans Gruber. I'm sure that that has something to do with him being an incredibly trained actor to be someone that's so, um, for being his first film, it's just nuts, but for being a theater actor and so... Uh, well-versed into how to get an audience captivated. That's what he does in this film, but it's a whole different game to go from theater to film and be able to suck an audience in like that. It's really hard to shake Hans Gruber and separate it from the actor Alan Rickman. Which is really hilarious because Alan Rickman himself had never really held a gun before and had trouble doing that and making it look authentic, which uh, I think is pretty funny. Yeah. Yeah. And one quick funny thing about the moment where he uses an American accent, that was something that wasn't originally in the script. And it was when someone, one of the production staff just asked him if he could do an American accent. And then he did. And uh, D'Souza heard that and thought, man, this is the bridge. This is how we can have Hans Gruber meet McLean. We need this to happen. And that's what we see in the movie is um, when he's faking being one of the hostages. And such a great scene. It really is. Such a great way to So tension heavy. And again, this writing the script on the fly, like, hey, let's just, now we're going to create this whole scene. (laughs) Man, it's like a pivotal part of the movie, you know? Yeah. Throughout the whole movie, I love the interplay between uh, Rickman and Willis. They have such good energy of like that push and pull and like testing each other. Another relationship that Willis has with another character is Al Powell, Reginald Vell Johnson. I like the way that they bring him into the movie, um, that he's this, you know, sort of like heavy set beat cop who's like going into a gas station to buy like Twinkies, presumably for his <laughs> pregnant wife, but possibly for himself. <laughs> And he's our introduction into the outside of the building. You know, we've been so insulated and and trapped and claustrophobic and stuck in this building. He's our first look at the outside world. And then I love the way that they bring him in by John McClane's trying to get his attention and nothing's happening. Finally drops one of the bank robbers onto this cop car and then uh, starts shooting at him. And then eventually they start this relationship via walkie talkie where Al Powell starts realizing, I think this guy's a cop. They do a lot with this relationship. It's they not, work into that yeah. though. There's a lot of trust that has yeah. to be built in order for them to get to that friendship point. I think when I was younger, when they got to the point where John's feeling very um, like it's the end of his rope and he's talking to Al and he's like, Hey, you know, tell my wife, I love her and all this stuff. And he's like, you know, he's like, oh, you're going to tell her that yourself. I used to think that was the boring part of the movie when I was younger. And now, like, when I watch him, I'm like, dang, this is, like, actually pretty good drama for a big, huge action movie. I mean, it's a pretty sentimental 
moment. It doesn't feel cheesy to me. You know, they're actually bonding and it makes it all the more special when you see them actually meet at the end of the movie. We'll get into the sequels, but I think the biggest thing that I don't like about Die Hard 2 is just like they used Al Powell for like two seconds. He's such a great character. You yeah, know? Like he's part he of He should have been like story. a big part of, you know, you should have worked him in. But he really gives a great performance in this. And I, as far as I know, like he was uh, in an interview, he said that he was about ready to quit acting when he got Die Hard and that he uh, bought his mom a house after uh, he got his Die Hard money. A lot of people will say that the love story is really between Al Powell and John McClane, which is kind of ironic considering the movie starts off with husband and wife trying to, you know, make their marriage okay again. And Holly McClane or Holly Gennaro McClane um, is played by Bonnie Bedelia. Initially, she was kind of brought in because they, Joel Silver said they needed some female eye candy. I mean, I guess you always have to throw a woman into like an action movie like this. And, and um, Bruce Willis at the time was part of uh, helping cast this role, which I think is pretty awesome. And also strange at the same time, considering the studio was like, I don't know if we want Bruce Willis or not. But he had seen Heart Like a Wheel with Bonnie Bedelia and really was just bowled over with her and recommended her, thought that she was wonderful. And whenever you hear a story of the lead actor recommending someone and the studio and production trusting them to go with it, and it works out really well, um, it kind of feels meant to be. And I think that they do make a really good um, couple in the that there's some struggle between them throughout the entire movie though it's almost like she knows that john is out there and she knows that he's i mean there's at least two or three times that she's plotting a move to try to protect him in some way or to not reveal who she is that she knows who is messing up hans gruber's plans and i feel that it was important for her role to be expanded the way that it was, because it wasn't that meaty of a role initially. She is the last person that McLean has to save at the end of the film, making her, you know, the damsel or something. She's not really. She's been this strong character throughout the film. And I think throwing in what originally Jeb Stewart did, this idea of a strong, independent woman who was using her maiden name and not just relying on her husband, um, this was another thing that was becoming a popular idea in the 80s and a woman being the breadwinner in, in the relationship. For a female character at this time, um, Holly Gennaro is a pretty good one. And even when she's facing Hans Gruber and pretty much the one that is leading the hostages or trying to control the situation, I mean, it's it's a pretty good meaty role for Bonnie Bedelia, and I do kind of applaud the writers for keeping that character, that female character, in there in such a prominent role. The chemistry between her and Bruce Willis in that scene right before everything kind of goes crazy where he's in her office and they're having a little bit of dispute. She's like, why don't you stay here? You know, and he's like kind of trying to freshen up. All that feels just so authentic. And it really helps, I think, shape where John and her are at in their lives. He's kind of got like a bruised ego, but he also doesn't want to walk away from his wife and kids. He's a little bit more emo in that scene than she is. Yeah. She's way more practical about it. And that's another thing that was kind of uncommon to write that in for a female character. She also gets a really good slug in to uh, William Atherton at the end of the film, which is so needed. He plays uh, Richard Thornburg, the 
reporter who kind of ruins a lot of things for um, um, trying to keep things under wraps for what's happening in the situation. Really made a splash being total D-bag in Ghostbusters. Such an um, a-hole. In this movie, I feel like a fairly honest portrayal of how a lot of media worked in the 80s and 90s. Like, right, you know, this was a time period when, like, expose news shows. Totally. It wasn't local news, but, like, the sort, you know, the hard copy type stuff. Like, he wants to, like, interview the kids. He's They're going to go to the house and just so really messed up. just such scumbaggery. But, like, pretty spot on. There's a lot of gross stuff that came out of, like, you know, we're going to really expose this and we don't care about people's misery or if they're in shock or in trauma at the moment we just want we got to get the story no matter what threatening the friggin babysitter yeah. so he can interview the kids terrible good god you just wanted him to take that punch and and it's a, a good one and a very punchable face very yeah asking for it he just got pushed in ghostbusters he didn't get yeah yeah he gets tased and die hard too <laughs> william atherton always always getting the uh manhandled like yeah. you should well speaking of uh d-bag a-holes i don't know that there's <laughs> been a bigger one than hart bachner's ellis hey johnny old buddy and i almost wonder if that was written as like sort of making fun of like 80s excess with cocaine yes. and like 100%. the wall street slimy guys he really i think walks a fine line between it being parody god every time he comes on screen just the the hans booby which i think was his uh ad lib i love that this guy's just like coked up through the whole movie it's like you don't feel bad no. about ellis bachner had the opportunity to play smaller roles of like sweaty um, elitist coked out guys like it in, in TV roles um, but in this one it, it, he actually was excited about it because he's like you know playing this character that he knows really well that he can own this totally a-hole cocaine face guy but has way more room to play with this character and uh, I mean every, every time you see him you want to just slap that mustache off yeah. his face when he calls him John Boy that's what it was. John Boy. Good God. I uh, can't help myself every time we do one of these movies. I read Ebert's review of the movie just to kind of see where he was at at the time of the release. Really was not a fan of Die Hard. Give it two stars. But what really, really pissed Ebert off was Paul Gleason as the uh, police chief. He said the movie was a mess because of the police chief. I feel like Paul Gleason brings... The humor, I almost feel like sometimes humor is lost on Ebert. I like that they have this bumbling police chief. I like that it's different than the police chief that we had seen or the police captain in so many action movies where they're just like this sweaty, screaming guy in an office. <laughs> you know, yeah. I kind of love that he's like bumbling and his back and forth with, with Al Pau is so great. Getting hung up on Paul Gleason is like, it's such a small thing to get hung up on. I just let it go, Ebert, really. Yeah. Somebody that we should get hung up on, someone who's the best usage of a character that is kind of unnecessary, plays an integral part in this movie, is uh, DeVorier White, who plays Argyle, who picks up McLean from the airport, and McLean asks him to, like, hang out while he's at this party, and, you know, afterwards, you know, if he can take him somewhere else, and... Argyle's just down there partying, has no idea what's going on upstairs the whole time until he becomes necessary to the plot, and then it's, like, perfect. Uh, just the fact that he would, you know, his job is, like, 
whatever. I'm just going to, if I stay here all night, I'm going to stay here all night. It's unaware of like all the craziness that's happening in the movie. And you almost forget about Argyle until they cut to him in the limo. You know, it was like 30, 40 minutes and into like, the movie. Oh, yeah. Like, oh, shit. Yeah, right. Argyle's, down Argyle's there. still down there waiting for him. <laughs> like he didn't drive off. Like you would think he, at this point, you would assume he'd be like, oh, him and his wife you know, made up there. He's going to stay at her house tonight, but. But all they had to do was set him up saying that this is my first time driving a limo yeah. and he's a young guy. Like he's going to take that opportunity and just like party in the limo. Yeah. Just the movie kicks off in such a great way where he's, you know, John McClane's like, you got any Christmas music? Cause he's like, you hear like a rap song coming up. And he's like, this is Christmas music. And then we have <laughs> Christmas and Hollis by run DMC. What a fantastic way to just, you know, open up a movie. It really is perfect. And to kind of round out the cast, um, let's end on some some bad guys, shall we? I mean, the first being Alexander Gudinoff, well-known ballet dancer. I can't decide whether I like him in Money Pit. Is that scumbag or this scumbag? I don't really know. But I like knowing that he can play a romantic scumbag and a violent scumbag. So that's some good range for a yeah, ballet dancer. He's pretty intimidating in this movie, too. Very. And the blonde hair just it makes helps. the long blonde hair. It's just kind of a unique... <laughs> look for a for a heavy really solidifying this is a a european group that we're dealing with second for me is probably uh clarence gilliard who dude you were my favorite conrad and matlock is also the one that kind of doesn't fit in the group but seems like the brains behind the operation of like breaking the code into things al leong who's uh let's see we talked about him in big trouble in little china yeah um, great stunt guy, uh, also great torturer in Lethal Weapon 1. And uh, gets, I think, another humorous bit, looks down and sees the Snickers, and he kind of looks around, you know, make sure no one's looking and, like, grabs a candy bar out of the... So funny, yeah. like, to just think about putting that in the movie. Yeah. It's it's keeping the levity in a stressful situation. Keeps it very playful. Yeah. Uh, one final shout-out, um, Huey Lewis, you do a great job, man. You You take that bullet between the eyes like a champ. Is there anyone who uh, has seen this movie and not thought right away, <laughs> is that Huey Lewis? It's not Huey Lewis. It's not Huey but Lewis. But it's a guy who could be Huey Lewis circa, you know, 87, 88, mm-hmm. like a four era uh, Huey Lewis. Definitely. So Die Hard was released in July of 1988. The response was great. You know, they felt like they had a really good movie. They put Bruce Willis on the poster. The movie didn't open huge. It made $7 million over the weekend. It went on to gross about $88 million. But word of mouth spread, and the promotion of the movie, they decided to just put the Nakatomi Towers on the poster. And that's why, like, you know, you see different VHS boxes and stuff. Some have Bruce Willis's face. Some have Nakatomi Tower. Well, eventually, after the movie started doing good, everyone was like, oh, man, we love Bruce Willis now. He's so great in this movie. So then they superimposed Bruce Willis's face and Nakatomi Tower, which is the poster that I like the most. I think originally that's what it was. And then the previews where people yeah. were seeing the trailers were like, no way am I seeing, am I going to believe Bruce Willis yeah. is spearheading this action? You know, went on to make its money back, was really successful, became a very... A successful franchise. I don't want to spend a ton of time talking about the Die Hard sequels. We did Lethal Weapon. I love when you talk about the sequels. I know, I know. <laughs> when we did Lethal Weapon, we talked about the sequels a lot because we really enjoy those sequels. I think that is one of the few franchises where all the movies, you know, they, they took a stance or like, we're going to go full comedy and action or whatever, and we're going to spend time with the characters 
and essential theme to all of them yeah, too. And man, Die Hard, I feel is just like not a good franchise overall. To me, Die Hard Two, I've tried to defend it, but every time I watch it, I like it less and less. I feel like it took all the elements of Die Hard and like made them. It's more of like a grumpier, angry movie. John McClane's jokes aren't as funny. Again, they cut Reginald Vell Johnson down to like a essentially like almost like a walk-on role. And it's mean-spirited. The fact that they have like all these people terrified on the plane and then the bad guys actually force the plane to crash and kill all these people. It's just, it's a very dark movie. The action is a little bit bigger, but again, I don't, it doesn't feel as creative as the action in the original Die Hard, as well as I like William Sandler, but it would just be hard to cast a villain after Alan Rickman's performance in Die Hard. Die Hard 2 was also not directed by John McTiernan. It was directed by Rennie Harlan, who does, you know, his movies have always been kind of over the top with action, and Die Hard 2 feels like more like action set pieces. You didn't dislike Die Hard 2 as much as I did. It's been a really long time, I'll say, since I've seen Die Hard 2. I agree with with the mean-spiritedness, but it, it feels just kind of like um, a retread in a lot of ways of, of the first one. It's kind of one of those things of, I never expect the sequel to be as good as the original, but I like seeing the same faces that I enjoyed in the first one. So I think sometimes I can be a little blind to, yeah, it's not the greatest, but when you're starting the movie again on Christmas Eve, I don't know. It just is, it feels like a retread. I'll go along for the ride, but there's probably a reason I've seen Die Hard 1 uh, many yeah. more times than I have the second one. Now, Die Hard with a Vengeance, I can get down with that one. I can too. Um, you know, they brought John McTiernan back for the mm-hmm. third one. It feel, has a very summer movie blockbuster feel to it. They make a connection with Die Hard 1 with Jeremy Irons, who I believe is the cousin of Hans Gruber. It, that one's kind of intense, you know, because they're like threatening to blow up like schools with little kids in them. It's a little long-winded, but there's a, it's the height of Samuel Jackson. Him and John McClane make a good pairing. There's some good energy between them. I do feel, though, that with Die Hard, the character of John McClane, they just they were like, you know what we're going to do is just with every movie, we're just going to kind of make him grumpier and meaner. And it just it, to me, that's just not a way to go. He doesn't. I feel like after three, he's just like stops becoming a likable character in any way. Part four, it starts almost getting to be the action type movies where anything is possible. He's like leaping off of the sides of jets and silliness. And then part five. I've only seen once and I just thought that it felt like a shell of a diehard movie. It was just, it felt like the, just a cash grab of just, we're going to slap diehard on it. And his name is John McClane and they have a plot with his son. And maybe there's some lovers out there for uh, the last few diehard movies. But to me, it's a franchise that just really, really exhausted itself. And just kind of a final thing before we move on to our picks of the week to go back to Bruce Willis, you know, he did, do five Die Hard movies, but in between those, he kind of became like a, a huge, I mean, one of the biggest action movie stars in the world. I mean, he did Planet Hollywood with Schwarzenegger and uh, Stallone, like they were the three top build action stars for like a good decade. I never really out like, right, hated any movies that he did. They just were, you know, okay, this is a new Bruce Willis movie. I watch it. A lot of good Sunday afternoon type movies, but every now and then he had a uh, interesting choice that he would pick, like The Fifth Element 
and uh, really a exceptional turn in Pulp Fiction. It's really uh, interesting to see him in that movie. I like when he shows up in things like uh, Moonrise Kingdom or yeah. Rock the Casbah. What I've liked him most later in his career are not so much the starring roles, but when Bruce Willis pops into a movie and you're like, "Oh heck yeah, I can I can get down with this." Yeah, and I you know I kind of admire the total weirdness of Hudson Hawk. I know it's a movie that doesn't really yeah. work and it's kind of all over the place. It's kind of totally nonsensical, but I, I admire Bruce Willis for like, hey, let's just do this like totally bizarro action adventure movie that is the name of a character that nobody's heard of. You know, it's just, yeah. um, and it's a wild movie. If you haven't seen it in a long time or if you've never seen it, it's worth watching once just because it's it's so bonkers. Don't you like Unbreakable? I do like Unbreakable. It's I think that again, that's another yeah. him taking a, a chance on a different kind of movie. And I think he does a good performance and actually he's really good in the sixth sense too. Yeah, the sixth sense. I mean, people still talk about that movie. And also uh Twelve Monkeys. I always movie. forget about that movie. Yeah, man, I want to watch that. I haven't seen that I haven't in either. a long, long like twenty time. years, yeah. Even his pop in in Planet Terror. I'm I'm down with that. He can bring uh the good guy aspect and the total evildoer. And it was fairly recently uh, publicized that Bruce Willis uh, retired from acting. He had some medical issues and kind of a sad story. Like if you check it out online, if you haven't heard about it, has left, you know, so many good movies to check out. And I still consider like Die Hard, I mean, a top 10 action movie of all time. I don't know that there's too many people that would argue that. Yeah, I think it will always and forever be that. Yeah. We'll come back for some final thoughts on Die Hard at the end, but uh, let's get into our picks of the week. Lindsay, you chose Presumed Innocent, a movie I haven't seen since it came out. What can you tell me about that movie? What's always stood out to me about this thriller is how unassuming it is. The first time I watched it, when the climax comes down, it really sends chills down my spine. I never try to ruin the endings of these picks of the week that we do because unlike our main features, we can avoid giant spoilers. And the ending of this late 80s, early 90s courtroom thriller feels like whiplash. Our lead is Rusty, played by Harrison Ford, a grade A prosecuting attorney at the top-notch law firm headed by the late great Brian Dennehy. The story kicks in fairly quickly, tracking down the murderer and rapist of another prominent and excellent assistant prosecuting attorney, Carolyn. And Rusty has been put in charge of heading the firm's investigation. One problem. And Rusty's wife, Barbara, played by diehard's Bonnie Bedelia, knows exactly what it is. They have 150 lawyers down there and they couldn't find one who didn't fuck her to put in charge. Barbara immediately makes us aware of the conflict of interest. She's dead and you're still obsessing. And it's true. Rusty never got over his affair with a now-deceased Carolyn. Presumed Innocent does two misdirections, which are irritating upon first watch, but when you reach the climax, the false leads fall perfectly into place from a movie point of view. On a second watch, it's very obvious, but it's not doing an injustice to the finale. From a 2022 perspective, especially from the victim's point of view, the misdirections can be maybe a little rude. One, Carolyn, the victim in this case, slept with any man who she saw fit. She's a take charge kind of gal. But once she's done with whichever man she's used to climb the ladder, she ditches them. I think there's a quote in there that says she's a user of men. And two, there's a fair amount of slut shaming and victim blaming. And with Carolyn previously before her death, 
heading the sex crimes division at her law firm, you might be able to imagine some undesirable comments being made throughout the film um, at this, you know, woman's expense, who is the murder victim. It's a little weird, but it does kind of play into the plot, so you kind of have to go along with it. Flashbacks are utilized quite a bit in this movie. I don't find it distracting, but I know some folks do. I mean, Justin, I know that you're not a fan of flashbacks. But in this case, I think that it's really worked into the plot that it's uh, present so much that it just becomes part of the narrative. The flashbacks in this case let us in on the nature of the relationship with Carolyn leading to how it has affected Rusty's marriage. And we understand Rusty a little more through these flashbacks. He's a do-gooder. He should appreciate what he has, but for no other reason other than not thinking ahead, he strays from his marriage and cheats on his wife. Then what? He accidentally catches feelings for this woman who doesn't want him. It's not that the relationship that he has with his wife is bad at all. He's just made a poor decision which has rippling consequential effects. The movie does a wonderful job of staying engrossing because this is an investigative story and one where you do go back and forth thinking, well, did Rusty kill her or is he being set up? And if he's being set up, what's the motive? Should we be paying more attention to the people who are immediately turning on Rusty and think he's guilty or the people who never question his innocence? Harrison Ford knows how to play strong characters, no doubt. And in Presumed Innocent, we get him playing someone who's passive. And I love seeing this in him as an actor. He's not involved in any action because it's all happening to him. And this wasn't what audiences were used to for Ford at this point in his career. I know I've wanked on and on about how much I love Harrison Ford's acting choices, and this is yet again a prime example of why. Like Ford, Greta Stacchi, who plays Carolyn, and Raul Julia, playing Rusty's defense attorney, all spent time with and observed real-life legal situations in process. Ford went to a murder trial, Scotchy worked with an attorney from a local sex crimes division, and Julia worked with a criminal lawyer. Adding further to the authenticity and dramatics to this film is throwing in a John Williams score. If his name doesn't immediately ring a bell, I know we've talked about him on this podcast before, but let me drop a few titles here. Jaws, Star Wars, Indiana Jones, E.T., Jurassic Park, as well as all of the Harry Potter films. He's the guy to go to to reach deep for those feelings and dramatically guide you through an emotional journey. In this case, the twisted winding road of finding out who Carolyn's killer truly turns out to be. As the film opens, Rusty gives us a voiceover in a barren courtroom with a seemingly innocuous, even obvious question to the audience. If the truth cannot be found or determined, what is the hope of justice? And when the curtain closes on this film, when you go back and rewatch this movie for a second time, that quote becomes absolutely haunting. I haven't seen this one in so long, but I think I've said this before. I just love this era of Harrison Ford, like the 90s, where he was doing these sort of like political thrillers and very uh, serious adult movies that have some action, but they were usually like high end and fast paced. He's like kind of skipping around like with this one and Frantic and like Mosquito Coast. I think there's not... A lot of movies in this time that, you know, we could really say, oh, you know what? Harrison Ford really, yeah, he really dropped the bag on that one. He's great in all of these. All right, Justin, I think it's your turn. I'd love to know about your pick of the week. So my pick of the week is 1991's Ricochet. This movie came out when I was a kid and I loved it then, but I hadn't seen it in a while. And revisiting it 
it's even more ridiculous than I remembered it. This was uh, a story written by uh, one of our favorites at the podcast here, Fred Decker. And uh, the screenplay was uh, co-written by Steven D'Souza of Die Hard. This movie to me is kind of wild because this is straight up a Jean-Claude Van Damme slash like Steven Seagal plot type movie. Um, except for you remove those guys and you put in like an uh, Oscar caliber, one of the greatest living actors, Denzel Washington in the lead role. And they just caught Denzel Washington at the exact right time for this movie. He hadn't done too many movies. I mean, he had already won an Oscar for a glory, but this was the year before he did Malcolm X and then kind of had a string of prestigious movies. He really makes this movie. I mean, this is a ridiculous movie anyway. Like there's so many unintentionally funny parts of this movie. But for the most part, it's a very simple thriller in the early 80s. Denzel Washington is friends with Ice-T, but they go their separate ways. Uh, Denzel Washington becomes a beat cop. And uh, I know I had mentioned Kevin Pollack in our last episode, and he, him and Kevin Pollack are, are partners. They happen to uh, be at the wrong place at the wrong time when John Lithgow really, really playing a up the villain character in this movie sort of double crosses the mob at least i think that's what's going on and he has like a little minion guy who's like always like kind of his hype man through the whole movie in doing this he's uh arrested stopped shot and arrested by denzel washington and someone was videotaping it at the time so it becomes this big sensational story um john lithgow took a bullet in the leg so he's like it's messed up the way he's walked and then also he is in prison for like gets sentenced to prison for like 25 years or something. And Denzel Washington's career just skyrockets. He makes detective immediately because the city of Los Angeles needs uh, some good stories about the police. So they sort of put him front and center. Uh, after eight years, he eventually becomes a district attorney. And we do like a hard cut to like eight years later. Now he's successful. John Lithgow finally has been obsessing over his revenge in prison and he creates this plan to basically not kill Denzel Washington's character, but just like ruin his life and his career. And so he sets out to basically frame Denzel Washington. And this section of the movie is pretty fun because they kidnap Denzel Washington. They uh, force him to do like hair. They like shoot him up with heroin and all this stuff. They hire like a prostitute to come over and have sex with him while he's like not 100% conscious. So they, in the, prostitute ends up giving him gonorrhea they make him think that he's at this hotel but they're actually not there they're someplace else so when he starts trying to reveal this story to his wife and to the people at his work they're not buying it and they're like no this guy uh oh and i forgot to mention john lithgow frames his uh he stages his own death so everybody thinks that his character's dead and so now they just think that uh, Denzel Washington's slowly going crazy. He teams back up with Ice-T, who they went their separate ways because Ice-T's become a crack dealer. and uh, But they haven't lost their friendship connection. So uh, with the help of Ice-T, Denzel Washington goes to uh, you know re reestablish himself as a, a good guy and uh, kill John Lithgow. This movie is 100% just total B movie. There's, there's several scenes where I just started laughing. It might be, this might be too stupid of a movie for a lot of people to get into. But if, like I said, if you like the Jean-Claude Van Damme, Steven Seagal type movies, just imagine Denzel Washington being plopped down as the lead of one of those films and, and you have Ricochet. 
Holy shit. I mean, really, you talked me into wanting to watch this movie tonight. Like, I, I was sitting here writing notes on, like, what I want to say to you, but, like, there's so many things that I was shocked and then also started laughing, but immediately made me want to watch this movie. Wow. And probably one of the most unintentionally funny parts of the movie is this guy that I mentioned who plays Igor to John Lithgow's Frankenstein, you know, always uh, his little minion, like always hyping him up like, oh, man, you're so awesome. Like, I can't be the smartest person ever. Like, I'm just happy to be like, you know, helping you out. And there's a scene where they first kidnap uh, Denzel Washington, knock him unconscious. And the uh, minion guy is like, oh, man, did you see him? He, he probably shit his pants. I can't wait to check. And he's like loading Denzel Washington's body into the car. And I just lost it. Oh, man, that's so good. I love and, watching John Lithgow as a bad guy. I'm yeah. actually, I, I should be watching a billion other things right now, yeah. but I did just start up season four of Dexter again. And what a great bad guy. It's one to watch. And we've got Ice-T. And I mean, my namesake for you listeners out there, I'm named after Lindsay Wagner. She does make an appearance in yes, this movie, right? she does, yeah. Yeah. And um, there's a fun crossover, too, with um, Mary Ellen Trainer. Right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, uh, she plays the reporter in Die Hard at the end. You know, she's doing reporting on a news story. She plays a reporter with the exact same n- name, newscaster name, as she does in Die Hard. So, you know, it's a crossover character. It's so and funny. Really funny, you know, that there's just... They they're like yeah we'll we'll throw her character same actor everything and just two years later these these are those nuggets for you yeah. guys that like listen to us yeah. every episode that you're like holy crap so, I'm so gonna go you, back so and if watch you think about <laughs> think about uh, Die Hard and Ricochet taking place in the same universe like the Die Hard shit was going on in another <laughs> section of L A uh, Denzel Washington is like battling John Lithgow then think about her as the stay at home mom too in Monster Squad yeah. Yeah. And and also the psychiatrist in Lethal Weapon. Like this woman, she's got a lot of balls in the air. She's she, got a she's lot of like jobs. She's reporting on some amazing stories <laughs> that are happening in Los Angeles in the late 80s, early 90s. So what an amazing pick of the week. Very diverse yeah, pick the, of the uh, week yeah. too for this episode. Yeah, Presumed Innocent and Ricochet. Whew. I think uh, they should both be watched. Here's your Murray moment. Chicks dig me because I rarely wear underwear, and when I do, it's usually something unusual. I think I need a root canal. I'm sure I need a long, slow root canal. You're gonna come and shake my monkey tree again? Oh, what does that old queen know? She didn't even chill. Okay, this is so scrumptious. Is this hand shot? The flowing robes embrace all striking. That was fun. This is one of my favorite stories I've ever heard and also serves to show how you should treat people at any time in your life. It really doesn't matter. Even if you think something is a small interaction, it might mean the world to someone else. In many previous Murray moments, I've mentioned how Billy got a heavy helping of what it was like to work in the service industry, specifically working as a caddy, his pizza parlor days, and various short-lived service jobs along the way. Bill once said that everyone should work as a caddy because it really makes you understand how to not treat people and what it's like to be treated like pond scum. 
it's humbling, something that might ground more people if faced with difficult interactions. And if you're not privy to this specific story, this one might surprise you, especially because it was during the early years of Billy's fame. Probably a lot of you have seen Bill and Die Hard's Bruce Willis, Uh, worked together in Wes Anderson's Moonrise Kingdom in 2012, and maybe Mitch Glazer's Rock the Casbah in 2015. But these films weren't the pair's first encounters. The two had a great time working together on both films, as Bill recalls. And one night, after a couple tequilas, Bruce told Bill something he'd been holding on to for 30 years. It turns out we had an ancient history that no one was aware of that he was aware of, Bill said during a 2015 interview at Comic-Con. When I was on Saturday Night Live, Bruce was a page, and that's a job that's kind of like a slave, like an intern slash slave. His job was to actually refill the M&M and peanut bowls in the actors' dressing rooms. Bill was definitely famous, but not Ghostbusters famous yet, but a major player in the widely celebrated SNL universe. But all these years later, Bruce revealed something that was previously unknown to Bill and pretty much everyone. Only you and Gilda were nice to me, Bruce exclaimed to Bill. Of course, Gilda is Gilda Radner from SNL. But in regards to their ancient history on SNL together, Bill said, Bruce is a movie star. You hear stories about people, and when you're a movie star, a real movie star, and he's a good one, you sometimes have to take matters into your own hands. In the name of entertainment, for one, more often than you think, just respecting the crew. There are people who try and sort of take over situations and dominate people. I don't want to say, quote, producer slime specifically, but there are people that want to take control of a group situation and dominate. And that's a personality flaw. A movie star can step into the middle of it and say, that ain't going to happen, boss. That ain't going to happen. They'll get a little loud and they'll get in someone's face. That story gets repeated and then that someone got loud and that they had a problem. And sometimes people get loud and they get ugly and cantankerous in the name of protecting the integrity of the job. But it's not the script or the hours that you have to work, but how the crew is treated or the food that they're serving. It's it's a lot of things. And in this case, it's the integrity of what has meant a lot to someone who's up and coming. After all this time, Knowing that Bruce Willis is the type of guy who'd confront this, and Bill is the type of guy who'd receive it and understand the importance it has to Bruce. It just means a lot on both ends. And I really couldn't think of a better Murray moment for a hundredth episode. Two guys coming together, someone who was coming up in the world and someone who was like big and famous and like yeah. emerging and now coming together and being like, Hey man, 40 years ago, right. you were actually the only cool guy. And thank you. What I find the strangest about this, because this is, I've never heard this really? story before. Yeah. Man, I was positive uh, you'd heard no, this. No, no, I'd never heard it. And so so <laughs> it's it's surprising to me that Bruce Willis said that because I've only heard that he's like really hard to work with and can be kind of cantankerous. So yeah. it's wild to think that he learned nothing from that lesson of someone being nice to him. And I could imagine, I mean, if being a page at that time during SNL days, if Bill and Gilda are the nicest people to you, I mean, right. I mean, the only bad stories I've ever really heard have been about Belushi and Bill, yeah. really. So it must be situational. Yeah. And the day that it's, it's not really surprising as far as Gilda Radner. I yeah. think she loved everybody. As far as being a page on SNL, yeah. I'm sure you get 
treated like crap. I mean, the 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 time that I was at SNL when the pages were leading us around, I kept thinking because I knew this story like yeah. back then, like you know, three years ago or whatever, thinking like, wow, this was Bruce Willis. Well, thank you for that, Murray moment. Of course. Well, Lindsay, before we close out our 100th episode, I had a couple final things about Die Hard that I forgot to mention earlier. Okay. Uh, one being that my mom moved back to St. Louis about a year ago, and when she first moved back, I was helping her fix up this house that she bought. Yeah. And her ringtone on her phone is the uh, you know music, the Ode to Joy when the doors open and Die Hard when they, or when the uh, when the uh, final uh, yeah. stage of the uh, safe opens up, you totally. know, and they're able to get yes. in. It kept going off, and so finally, I was just like, it just cracks me up that it's the die hard you know scene you said this to your mom yeah yeah and she was like what you know and i was like that your ringtone she goes that's like a famous beethoven symphony ode to joy and i was like i understand that <laughs> i do know that <laughs> but i'm always gonna remember More from importantly, die hard. yeah so every time her phone would go off i would just picture the uh the safe opening up and <laughs> oh i love that story that's cute you uh, mentioned this when we were off the mic, and I was like, "Oh yeah, we have to. We can't forget to Rick bring Dukeman? up. Yeah, we didn't bring him up in the cast. Even we though love he's Rick only in, He's only in it for a moment, but coming up in so many movies. Yeah. I mean, The Burbs is probably yeah. maybe our number one movie that he's he's made an appearance in. But he does so much with his. Just, I mean, he's on screen for like a minute, but the shut it down, shut it down now. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he's so petrified. Yeah, we love him, Richie Common. Glad you popped up in this movie. R.I.P. Yeah. Of course. Well, finally, to close us out, uh, we're going to answer the age-old debate. No, we don't have a one side to take on it. Is is Die Hard a Christmas movie or isn't it? You know, clearly when they were writing it, they were wanting it to take place around Christmas. There's several things that allude to Christmas in the movie. That was like the one thing they wanted to yeah. keep in the script. Yeah. It has to take um, place at Christmas. You know, and that's in the script. And then when they yeah. shot it, you know, it's there's a lot of Christmas trees and that kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, the ho, ho, ho with the, you know, <laughs> and then not to mention it open and closes with Christmas music. You know, and it's become, you know, a very big thing to people to watch Die Hard on Christmas. And I do it myself. I, I, I get down with it. You know, I, you know, you had mentioned Lethal Weapon very much. It's like if Die Hard's a Christmas movie, Lethal Weapon's a Christmas movie. I just like the idea that there are these more like adult themed type action type fun movies that you can watch that aren't, you know, like yeah. watching Elf or like whatever, you know, a bunch of like kid oriented movies, which is generally ones that are Christmas themed. But the fact that the studio released this movie in the heat of July makes me think that they weren't <laughs> trying to fashion this as like, here's a movie that people will be watching every Christmas. You know, we're going to, you know, it's, it was a very much like a summer blockbuster. Yeah. I think that that is the most astute observation. It wasn't intended as a Christmas movie, but I don't think that that makes it not a Christmas movie. Yeah. You can use this at any time. I, I mainly just think it's funny that this has become such a heated debate on the internet. Well, well, but everything is a heated debate on the internet. But if I might add my own hot take oh, that I've been yes. thinking about, a Christmas movie that nobody talks about. Please. And it's clearly a Christmas movie. They bring up Christmas in it. The same thing. It opens. It's it's christmas e time. They, oh they say God. Christmas multiple times. There's... Uh, Christmas trees in it. It's one that, uh, because of its tropical setting, for the most part, you don't think of it as oh a Christmas God, movie. Oh my God, what is it? Jaws Revenge. Oh, you know what? Ultimate Christmas movie. Yeah. Jaws Revenge. So if, if you're looking for a new trend, 
hashtag Jaws Revenge is is a Christmas movie. And, and, th- and that's not to say I don't love Christmas movies. Uh, you and I have made it a tradition to go see Christmas Vacation in theaters, you know, in December every year. But I say whatever, you know, holidays you're celebrating, enjoy the movies. Let's have a good rest of this year. We hope you all have a great holiday season. We are going to take a little bit of a break, but we're going to, when we're, when we're going to come back on January 31st, and our next film is actually going to highlight one of the most important holidays, the most celebrated holidays of all the holidays. Of uh, Probably my most, in my family, my religion, my right. ethnicity. The one with the most traditions, yeah, obviously. definitely uh, the most traditions. Groundhog's Day. Yeah. So we'll be back with be back Bill in January. Until next time, I'm Justin Johnson. And I'm Lindsay Raper. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks for listening, guys. Happy 100th episode, Justin. Crazy. Holy cow. It is a Christmas miracle. <laughs> it really is. It's going to go. It's going to go. Pissing in the pits right now. <laughs> Bears gonna have my ass.